0: we're in judges chapter 2 this morning so get your bibles and open them up to judges chapter 2. i'm going to invite you to stand we're just looking at the first five verses of judges chapter 2 so why don't you stand up and i'll read for us these five verses in the first little portion of judges 2 here this is the active and living word of the lord God says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bohim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt, and I brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. In fact you shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Y'all can have a seat. Let's pray together. God, you tell us that... The grass withers, the flower fades. You tell us that uh, everything really will fade away except for your word. Your word will stand forever. Uh, There are so many things in this life that seem fruitless. They return to us void, but you say that your word will never return to you void. And so we pray that our Our experience this morning with your word would be aligned with that truth, that it would be fruitful, it would be transformative, it would be enlivening, it would be nourishing, and we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen so you've probably had experiences like this in your life from time to time where you found yourself unexpectedly in the midst of an awkward situation an awkward confrontation perhaps it can really crop up at any moment it can happen when you're out in public let's say you're working on your laptop at starbucks you know they put the tables kind of close together at a lot of coffee shops and so it's almost like you're sitting with people sitting next to you sometimes and I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but maybe the people next to you are having kind of a heated conversation. Like maybe one person is confronting another person on some, some relational issues, something that's kind of intense. Or, or maybe it's something like, hey, I think we should break up. Or, or maybe it's an employer talking to their employee and they're taking them out for coffee to let them know, hey, we're gonna have to let you go. <laughs> and you're you're sitting there, you know, trying to mind your own business, but it's, it's awkward. You're sort of enveloped into this, this confrontation or maybe it's a more intimate social setting Um, like on The Office when Michael and Jan host the dinner party. Remember that? They have, they have a lot of awkward moments. Lots of conflicts crop up in front of all of their dinner guests. They argue about, you know, are we going to have kids or are we not going to have kids? And everybody's just sort of sitting there weirded out and feeling very uncomfortable. Um, Jan is still clearly infatuated with her former assistant. And that bothers Michael. He's insecure about that. And that's awkward. And just all these weird confrontational vibes. Well, that's kind of what we're experiencing here in Judges chapter 2. Uh, there, is a, there is a deep... Relational confrontation happening here in Judges chapter 2. God uh, has put uh, tons of energy, tons of passion and love into this, this relationship with his people. And, and now he's having a, a very intense heart-to-heart conversation with them. He's confronting his people and uh, the people of God, they get really emotional when God confronts them. And, and we are imaginatively immersing ourselves in this moment and, and we're right there. We're watching God confront his people, we're watching the people of God get all emotional. And, and at the end of this passage, in addition to the awkwardness of the confrontation and the emotion of God's people, we're left wondering what just happened and, and what will come of this? Will this bear fruit in the, in the life of, of the nation of Israel or will they yet again harden their hearts and just repeat the cycle of, of sin? Well, at a minimum, we can see that there's a confrontation going on here. That's our first point. We see the the angel of the Lord comes to the people of God and first and foremost, he reminds the people that he loves them. God wants to first and foremost say, let's let's review the history of the relationship. Y'all were enslaved in Egypt. You were oppressed. You were afflicted. You were desperate. And I pursued you. I rescued you. And I didn't just pull you out of slavery and set you on your way, but I covenanted with you. I promised to never leave you or forsake you. I promised to provide you with the land of milk and honey, the promised land. And I've delivered on that promise. And I've promised to be faithful to you, and I have been. And I commanded you that, that when you entered this promised land that you needed to drive out the inhabitants. You needed to not ally yourselves. With these corrupt people groups you you shouldn't get entangled with the inhabitants you should tear down their altars and fight against their self centered traditions that breed injustice and corruption but you haven't done it you haven't obeyed and we can pause right here and we can all admit that this is uncomfortable confrontation just in and of itself is uncomfortable we get anxious when it comes to confrontation because we've all had experiences where we've confronted somebody we've dared to confront somebody and they've gotten defensive and and we don't we don't want that we don't want people to become hostile to us when we confront them with truths that, that they don't want to hear i remember i remember being in a meeting one time and and a, a person was being confronted on their their childishness you know their petulance and they had they had this tendency of Becoming angry, they had anger issues and and when they were confronted on it, uh, they became as you might not, as you might be not surprised to hear petulant and angry uh, they, they stood up in a very sort of intimidating way and started yelling and, and sort of storming about the room and it was uncomfortable it was very awkward and, and you have, you have experiences like that, and it's no wonder that you find in yourself this desire to avoid avoid having any confrontation or maybe you've had this experience where you've you've been around when someone has been confronted on something and they look at you like you're crazy they, they say oh, I'm, I'm so confused I have no idea what you're talking about I've been in meetings like that as well where where a person is being shown something that they desperately need to see their behavior is destructive and and hard and and it's making life bad for other people and and they look at They look at their confronters and they say, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm so confused as to why you're bringing this up. They make you feel like the crazy one. Or the worst case scenario, if you ask me, is when you confront somebody and they say that they're the victim. They say, now I'm offended. You've hurt my feelings by telling me this truth that I don't want to hear and you are a judgmental bully for telling me this. That is the worst because you feel like the bad guy. But we can't make any of those experiences our excuses for avoiding confrontation. Simply put, we can't, we can't sidestep all conflict and confrontation because we follow Jesus. And Jesus, first and foremost, confronts us. The most primary, most regular way you will experience confrontation is Jesus confronting you. <laughs> You see this all over the Gospels. Jesus' followers are most primarily experiencing the the Christ-centered confrontation directly from Jesus to to them in their own personal lives. We all need to be called out and held accountable and confronted at times. And so at a minimum, you will experience conflict and and confrontation because if you're a follower of Jesus, he's, he's not gonna just let you do life on your terms. He's gonna confront you. And then beyond that, we can see in the gospels, Jesus confronts people in all kinds of general ways. When Jesus was teaching the masses, he would say things that ruffled feathers. He would offend people. He would confront people on their, their sin patterns. And ultimately you could say Jesus does this because he wants to cultivate a healthy community. A healthy community is not where we lie to each other and people please so we can just keep the peace and all get along and don't rock the boat. A healthy community is one where we can respectfully have disagreements and we can work through the differences. We can confront. There will be a constructive version of conflict because we live in a broken world and we have to wrestle through all the various issues that crop up in our lives as individuals and in our lives as a community. Now, that's not to say that Jesus was always confronting people. You, you see in the Gospels, and you see this all throughout the Old Testament as well, that, that God has a criteria for confrontation. I mean, we see this all throughout the Bible. God is very long-suffering. He's very patient. He's not always calling people out on everything He could call them out on. If that were the case, we would, we would always be having confrontational meetings with God. But Jesus has this criteria for confronting people. And we see that in this passage and we see that all throughout Scripture. So, so three things we can see about God's criteria for confronting people. Number one, if you're going to confront somebody, you first have to care about them. You, you have to first pray for that person and, and ask yourself, do I love them? Or am I just being crit- critical and judgmental and self-righteous? Jesus never confronted someone with a spirit of judgmental self-righteousness. He, he confronts because he cares, because he loves. And you see that in this passage here in Judges 2. God says, let me remind you why I'm confronting you, why I'm disciplining you. It's because I love you. Look at, look at our history. Look at our relationship. I moved towards you when you were in your sin, when you were afflicted, when you were oppressed, and I've stayed with you, I've been faithful to you, I've promised my covenant faithfulness to you. That's why I'm confronting you, because I love you. So when you think about moments in your life where you need to move towards somebody and tell them something hard, first you need to assess, have I prayed for this person? Do I want to work with them for their joy? Are are my motives coming from a place of true love and care? Secondly, when Jesus confronted people, primarily, you know how he did it? He did it with questions. Another way of saying this is he didn't just argue people. He didn't just argue with people. He didn't just like launch into all of his good rational reasons for why they should change. Because here's the thing, people aren't changed by information. They're not. We are not changed by information and argument. We, we tend to think that we are, but we're, we're not. We don't change that way. So when Jesus confronts people, he was, he was always inclined to tell them stories, these parables. And people were confused by these stories. And that was on purpose. Jesus was trying to get his, his audience to think more deeply about where they were and the decisions that they were making and how they may not have it all right. Jesus was the master teacher, and so he's always telling people parables. In fact, in Matthew 13, it says never did Jesus say anything that didn't have some connection to a parable. He only always and forever taught with these confounding, confusing parables that begged all kinds of questions. God in scripture is called wonderful counselor. What do counselors do? They don't just hit you with all this information, just bombard you with their arguments as to why you need to change. They ask you questions, right? Because you you need to discover for yourself where you are and why change might be helpful. So here in Judges 2, we see a question. God asks, what is this you have done? Now, is it because God doesn't know what they've done? No, he knows better than they know what they've done, but he's trying to get them to think. He's trying to get them to wrestle with What they've done and God has a stout track record of doing this back in Genesis chapter 3 where it all went wrong what does God do does he just come into the garden and bombard Adam and Eve with all these accusations and arguments as to why that they were wrong no first thing he does is he says where are you and again he's not wondering I don't know where you are where are you he's asking do you know where you are Do, do you see yourself Have you stopped and and taken stock of of who you are, where you are, what what you're doing? He asks after that, who told you? Where are you getting your information? That's a great question. Who told you that you could be God? Who who filled your your head with these, these lies that you could name yourself, that you could choose for yourself your own identity and your own path for the good life? Who told you that? Who's been lying to you? Who named you? Right. God is trying to get us to think about where we are, where we're getting our information, and what we're doing with it. And so when you're confronting someone, you you ask questions. That's what Jesus did. That's what God's been doing all throughout Scripture. The third thing, the third criteria is you are committed to helping them. You know, when Jesus confronted people, he would always end with, follow me. Right? When he's confronting the rich young ruler, he gives the rich young ruler a command that it's, it's very hard for him to, to obey. Right, Sell everything. But then he says, follow me. You know how many, how many counselors do you know who would say, now, our hour's up, but that doesn't mean our time is up. Come with me. They don't do that. <laughs> when, when the counselor gets to the end of the hour, they say, please go away. Right, They're nice about it. Our hour's up. I'll see you next week. But that's code for please leave. Your, your, your issues are far too burdensome for us to just continue on living together. But that's not the way it is with Jesus. Jesus says, if you really want to live the good life, if you want health and, and, and the life to the fullest, then it will be found in following me. And, and I'm happy to have you do that. And so if you're going to confront somebody, you have to ask yourself, finally, am I committed to helping them? They're doing the the hard, very involved work of of helping them along a better path. Now, if you follow Jesus, I should warn you, it's going to feel like dying. This is what the Apostle Paul says, follower of Jesus. Apostle Paul says in, in sort of a summation statement, following Jesus is essentially me being crucified with Christ. That's what Paul says. As a follower of Christ, I've been crucified with Christ. And it is actually no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And one of the big dimensions of feeling that crucifixion with Christ, dying to self, it will come in the form of conviction of sin and contrition. And we see that in this passage. The people here in this passage, when they are confronted, they are they're convicted to some degree. They feel remorse. They feel contrition. They lift up their voices. They weep they name the place of the confrontation bohim which means weeping the place of weeping and they offer sacrifices to god so at a minimum the people of israel feel some kind of grief some level of conviction and distress and that you need to understand is a good sign we're going to discuss in a minute how that's not that's not the whole story God's not going to settle for for just this one momentary episode of grief or remorse, but it's a good starting point. It's a good sign. Even if this is temporary remorse, which if you keep reading in the book of Judges, it seems like it might be. But even if it's just temporary remorse, there's still something, something good about that. And I say that specifically because of a story in 1 Kings chapter 21. In 1 Kings chapter 21, God tells us a story of King Ahab. And if you've ever heard the name Ahab, you know he's the worst. One of the most corrupt, hard hearted, evil kings in all of Israel's history. Ahab is horrible. And so God sends the prophet Elijah to tell Ahab that punishment is coming. Disaster is on the way. And when Ahab hears this news, he tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth, he fasts, and he walks around the palace dejectedly. And we know for Ahab that that is temporary remorse. Because in the very next chapter, 1 Kings 22, Ahab's right back to his corrupt, evil ways. And nevertheless, God goes to Elijah when Ahab is feeling some level of remorse and he says, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself? It's almost like God's impressed because, you know, God really, really loves repentance. It's almost like God will even go for the crumbs of repentance because he's so, he's so enlivened and excited about this fact that we need to die to self. We need to actually enter into this place of contrition and conviction God says to Elijah, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself? Because he's humbled himself, I will not bring the promised disaster in his days. Now, like I said, that's a good start. Clearly, God is on board with this repentance, even if it's short-lived in the life of Ahab. But ultimately, God says, I want enduring repentance. I want a, a lasting repentance. So last year, I think I've told you all this before, I got a speeding ticket, and um, When I got my speeding ticket, when I got busted for speeding, I did not fall in love with the speed limit or the laws of the road, right? I felt bad because I got caught. I felt some level of, I guess you could call it contrition, because I was going 40 in a school zone. And you're not supposed to do that, apparently. And so then I had to, you know, go through the rigors of getting the ticket dealt with. But it's, it's, it's got to be said and it's got to be clarified. I was not converted to love for the law. I didn't lay in my bed meditating on the laws of, of America, the speed limits. I, did, I, didn't, I didn't do that. And when God talks about his law in the word, he says, that's what I want. What I want is I, literally, I want you to lay in your beds and meditate on how loving it is of God to give you his instructions, to give you his commands. That's what I want for you. And so I will settle for nothing less than that, ultimately. God describes what he wants in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. This is what God wants. Paul had offended the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth, you can read the whole letter. They, they were very put out by Paul. They were very disturbed and unsettled by Paul. Uh, they didn't like Paul on a lot of days. And Paul says to them in 1 Corinthians, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I know I made you grieve. I know I I made you feel bad. I, I know that. But he says, I don't regret it. In fact, I rejoice. I rejoice that I made you grieve because you were grieved into repenting. The Holy Spirit was at work and you felt this godly grief. And here's the thing about godly grief. It produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Godly grief produced this earnestness in you, Paul says. You had this eagerness to to repent and to clear yourselves. You had this righteous indignation against your own corruption. You had an enlivened sense of revering God, fearing the Lord. You had this new energy, this new zeal, this new longing to follow Jesus. Paul says, "I I don't regret grieving you. I rejoice because it produced fruit in your life. I told you all last week that I I recently listened to uh, Bono's autobiography, the lead singer of U2. Uh, There's a story in his biography where he he tells about the time that he forgot his wife Allie's birthday. He was working on the Joshua Tree album, and he was in the studio. He was so deeply embedded in the work that he just totally spaced the fact that it was his beloved bride's 25th birthday. So eventually, you know, he gets back to Dublin, and Allie's like, did you forget something? And he realizes, oh, right, it was your birthday. So what did he do? Well, he felt really bad about it, but he didn't just wallow in the sense of guilt. He thought, I I need to clear myself. I, I need to get back into the studio and write and record a love song for my wife to show her, to prove to her that I really am committed to her. So he did. He wrote the song, The Sweetest Thing. Did you know that's a love song to his wife to make up for the fact that he missed her 25th birthday. So then, you know, a few years goes by, and as you could probably guess, if you know anything about the song, it, it went big, right? It became a hit and it started generating all this money. So Ali comes back to Bono and she says, that's my song, right? You gave that to me for a birthday present. That's my song. He says, yeah. She says, so all the proceeds, all the money that song makes, that's my money, right? And so he goes and he talks to the band and they say, yeah, she's got a good point. So all that money literally goes, not to Allie ultimately, but through her to one of her most beloved charities. Now you'd look at that and say, "Now that is fruitful repentance. That is some really amazing fruit that came from Bono being grieved and feeling this righteous indignation with himself and saying, you know what? I'm going to do it better now. I'm going to turn away from forgetting my wife's birthday and I'm going to write her a love song. And then lo and behold, it generates this money and it goes to pay for things that are really helpful and good. That's what God wants. God wants fruitful, robust repentance. So here's, here's some, some challenging questions for us. What, what does God want you to repent of that you're not really repenting of? And if if you press yourself on it, you think, you know, I don't know if I'll ever repent of that. Really? What would that be for us? It would be stuff like gossip. Are you really going to repent of gossip? I mean, if somebody overheard you gossiping, like the person you're gossiping about, you would feel momentarily remorseful. You'd think, oh, I feel like such, such a bully for having said that within earshot of the person. But then a few days, a few weeks goes by, and it's just too hard not to. Got to get back to the gossip. Got to hear about what's going on and share those juicy nuggets of gossip. We go for it. It's, it's hard to really repent of that. What about greed? It's hard to repent of greed. If y'all came over to my house and, and we walked into my closet and you said, wow, you are greedy. What are, I know you. I don't see you wearing like half of these clothes, these shoes. I mean, you're just hoarding this stuff. You are such a materialist. You're just hoarding all of this material wealth. What are you doing? Well, I'll feel a little bit, you know, stung by you. I'll feel a little bit, like, bristled by what you're asking about or or confronting me on. But, you know, give it a few days. I'll be right back at it. I'll be shopping again in no time. Right? Accumulating more stuff that I really don't use and I really don't need. It's hard to repent of our greed. We we just want more stuff. We medicate ourselves with stuff because we we can control it. Right? We, can, we can feel like we have some measure of predictability and control. That's why we're materialists. What about being overly sensitive? We, we like to take offense. We like to be the victim. right? In our, in our cultural moment, being the victim is like super valuable currency. If you can convince somebody that you're the one who's been wronged, you're the victim, then they'll listen to you. Right? They'll, they'll, really, they'll coddle you and comfort you, and you'll get all this attention and validation. I have a book recommendation for you. We're still in January, so if you make book lists like I do for 2023, put this on your book list. It's a book recommendation I've made before. It's called Unoffendable by Brant Hansen. If you've, if you've read this book, you need to reread it. If you've never read it, it's, it's fantastic. And it's just all about how we just love to be sensitive and to take offense. We are just take offense junkies. We love to be offended. And we are, we are just making our life sour when we do that. We're not doing that because we're pursuing the joy of God. We're doing that because we're sort of masochistic, right? We're, we're inflicting ourselves with this torment. That's what we're doing when we choose to be offended all the time. So the big million dollar question is, how do we actually change? How do we actually change? Uh, that's a question this passage actually prompts us to ask in a big way. I mean, did the Israelites really change? when they were confronted by God. And I think the first thing we have to say in response to this question, how do we actually change, is that's a good question. It's complicated. It's confusing. Look at at what the people do here in verse 4. They lift up their voices. They weep. They name the place of the confrontation bochim, which means weeping. They sacrifice to the Lord. But you're left wondering, did they really repent? did they really and you know a lot of the time we look at other people's lives and we think well if they would just do this then their lives would be better if they would just repent it would be so simple so easy but we don't do that with ourselves we, we wrestle with this in our own individual lives we wonder a lot of the time about ourselves like am i really being impacted by the supernatural living and active word of god because if it's supernatural, if it is the active and living word of God, it should be changing me in ways that are, I would suppose, or, or assume more dramatic than what I'm seeing on a day-to-day level in my life. You know, we, we, we can read this, we can memorize this, that repentance is where a sinner has this true sense of, of their sin And and the grievous nature of their sin and a true sense of the mercy of God. And we hate our sin and we turn from it and we run toward God with full purpose to obey him and and zeal to to have this fresh commitment to him. But then we look at our real lives and we think, it's just not that simple. It's not that easy. So, what would scripture say? What does repentance look like as we look at all the stories that God presents to us in scripture? Well, number one, it looks like endurance. Endurance. It doesn't look like crossing the finish line. Not in this life. It looks like endurance. So I need you to imagine for a second an ultra marathon. Not 26.2. We're like 130. Okay? 130 mile foot race. That's the race set before you as a follower of Jesus. The, The book of Hebrews says run with endurance the race that is set before you. And that race is an ultra marathon. So the name of the game is keep moving. God, God is not saying, now do this at a seven minute per mile pace. No, no, you can do it as a, at a 17 per minute mile pace if you need to. The, the point is, are you are you moving in the direction God wants you to be moving? If you run an archival marathon, you're going to do it slower than maybe you want to do it. There are going to be times where you're running at three in the morning and you're hallucinating. You're, you're not really sure what's real, right? You're sleep deprived, your body's breaking down. And you know what? That's evidence that you're actually in the race. That's not a bad thing. That's actually a weirdly comforting thing. Because if you feel like it's grueling, it means you're actually participating. You know, if you're running in an ultramarathon, you do need to stop and take a break every now and again to hydrate, to get a snack, right, to, to replenish some of those calories that you're burning. Doesn't mean you're stopping forever, but you're stopping for the purposes of rehydrating so that you can keep moving. You know, when you, when you run these long foot races, sometimes you get lost. Sometimes, especially in the dark, you get off the trail. And then part of your race, running with endurance, is first finding your way back to the path you're supposed to be on. And that's how life really feels, doesn't it? You feel like sometimes I feel like I'm going crazy, I'm hallucinating, I'm just really slow, I feel sluggish, I feel lost. And God says, all of that's great. That means you're running with endurance, the ultramarathon marathon that I have commissioned you to run. The one thing you cannot do is quit. That's the one thing you can't do. You can't say, I'm done, I will no longer be a participant in the sanctification process that God has ordained for my life. You can't do that. If you're in something hard, you stay in it because God has this this desire for you to run this race. Now, when you run an ultra marathon, uh, perhaps you all know this, you don't do it alone. You have people who meet you at like the aid stations and maybe run sections of the race with you. The fact is, you're going to feel really desperate and weak and needy all throughout this race. And so you're going to need help. And so we see that in a big way all throughout scripture. Paul says it like this in Romans 7. As a committed, mature follower of Christ, Paul says, you know what I often find in myself? I find this. I find the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. That's what I find. I find that the good I want to do, I often don't do that. In fact, I'm still doing evil. I'm still being selfish a lot of days. Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will save me from myself? And then he, he goes on to say, it's, it's got to be Jesus. It's got to be Christ. That's the only way I'm going to make it. And that squares up with what Jesus says in the gospel. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So real change can only happen if you're with Jesus. That may sound really elementary, really basic, but you need to preach that to yourself every day. I cannot be the person I want to be and the person God wants me to be on any given day unless I'm with Jesus. And that doesn't mean get advice from Jesus and then go out and try to accomplish it on your own. It means you're always with Jesus. As I thought about this, I had this, this sort of um, flashback to when my mom would take me to the store, the grocery store with her when I was, you know, three or four. You know, when you go to the grocery store when you're three or four, the, the main objective is just stay with mom. Just be right there on her hip. Wherever she goes, you go. She's your ride. She, she's like how you live in the world. Like, you can't make it. Apart from her, you can do nothing. So stay with mom. And maybe you had this experience where, you know, you got distracted by the, the cap and Crunch or something, and, and you look up, and there was someone, unbeknownst to you, who kind of looked like mom from the back, and you followed that lady around for a while, and then she turns to get the oatmeal, and you, oh, this on my mom. And then they take you up to the front, and will Mrs. Dirks please come get your wayward child, right? And you are freaking out because you know, apart from mom, I'm totally lost. I I can't do anything apart from mom. The other thing about being with Jesus is is that we got to clarify this. You are following him. All right? So if you're with Jesus, you're not leading. It's not like you take Jesus with you to do whatever you're going to do. No, no, that's not how this works. You're going with him where he wants to go. So when I went to the store with my mom, you know where she wanted to go? The outer edges of the grocery store, the boring sections, the eggs, the yogurt, the milk. I think think the most exciting thing we ever got near was the bacon and then we, we finished with the worst part, the produce section. And where did I want to go? I wanted where the Captain Crunch was. I want to go to the middle aisles where all the sugar gets sold. But we don't go where I want to go. We go where mom wants to go. And so Jesus says, you know how you really change? It's not that you take me with you where you want to go. It's that you follow me where I lead you. So in Judges, where, where is God leading the people? He's leading them into the promised land, and he's saying, now I'm leading you to do things that feel unsafe or senseless to you. Like it feels more sensible to the Israelites to, to make alliances with the inhabitants, to not drive them out. That seems more sensible to them. But God says, that's not how we're doing this. We're not doing what makes sense to you or what feels safe to you. You're doing what I say. And it's the same way with Jesus and his disciples. If you look back at the Gospels, where did Jesus lead his his team of disciples? Well, he had this group of 12 Jewish men and they were indoctrinated from the earliest of ages. Uh, They were told, you never ever go near Samaria. Well then along comes this rabbi, Jesus, and he's like, all right, boys, today. We are going to Samaria, and we're going to talk to this, this woman, and she's got kind of a sketchy reputation, and it's, it's, it's just all going to feel very unsettling and unsafe and socially unacceptable. And yet, if you're following Jesus, you're going where he's going, right? He's going to take you into situations that don't feel logical, that don't feel safe to you. Jesus hung out with lepers. You weren't supposed to go near lepers, And yet Jesus would go near them. Jesus would go to tax collectors' parties. And and we know that his reputation sort of took a hit for this. People said, well, he's a drunkard and a glutton. He can't go there. And Jesus said, this is where we're going. Jesus went to Simon the Pharisee's house for a dinner party. So if you're you're really unnerved by self-righteous, uptight, stuffy people like Simon the Pharisee, guess what? If you follow Jesus, sometimes he's going to take you to have dinner with those types of people. He'll take you to all these different places that you really don't want to go, but that's how you're really changed. You follow Jesus. You're with him all the time. And last but not least, it's not enough to simply follow Jesus. You can't just follow him. You have to love him. That's what he says. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he says, you have to love me with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. You can't just follow me. I, I insist that you love me. Thomas Chalmers, uh, sort of old Puritan guy, he had this expression. He said, you know, there is this, there's this phenomenon of the expulsive power of, of a higher affection. So we're talking about, you know, how do I need to change? Specifically, how do I need to not do some of these things that I'm inclined to do? They're not healthy, they're not good, but I just keep doing those things. How do you expel those things? How, how do you cut them off? You can't just decide to do it, you know, conjure up the willpower. You have to be more in love with something else that forces you to expel that thing. So a good example of this is kids. For y'all who have kids, we're, we're all selfish. And none of us graduate from selfishness in this life. We all struggle with this our entire lives. But your selfishness will take a major hit when you have kids. Because there are things your flesh will just want to do that you can't do. Because if the kid is crying at two in the morning because they need to be cleaned up, you can't say, well, they'll just I guess that's their problem. No, that's your problem. They will scream their head off until you get up and you clean them up or feed them or whatever they want. You're doing life on their terms. You, you can't be selfish, right? You, you will, some measure of sanctification in a palpable way happening in moments like that. And here's what's amazing is that really on some level you're doing it because you really do love that kid. Right? You love them. And so you're willing to do these hard things and experience the, the, the mortification of your selfishness because there's this higher affection in your life. These, these precious children. Children will expel your idolatry of logic. When you have kids, you're gonna start watching all these Disney movies. They're not logical. They're about fantasies and princesses and, and magical realms. And then the most illogical thing you'll do when they hit the age of about six or seven is you will drive to Orlando in the summer and you will pay through the nose to stand in line in the humidity and heat. Are you, why would you do that to yourself? Because you have kids because you have this higher affection that's driving you to do something that is totally crazy and illogical. And God says, that's what I want. I want you to be so fixated on my love for you, so defined by my love for you, that you in turn really do love me with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And that's how you truly change. Let me pray for us. God, we ask that you would cultivate this kind of love in us. Uh, We know, because you make it really clear in Scripture, that this love doesn't come from us. We don't just decide to love you in this intense way. Uh, We love because you first love us. And to the degree that we are impacted by that love, uh, we are shaped by that love and enamored with that love, we we will follow you, even when it's hard, even when it's confusing. And so we pray that you would cause that to be our experience, that you would cultivate in us this deep, uh, expulsive power of a higher affection for you, and that it would be our delight, it would actually be our joy to walk in your will, not ours, and to delight in your ways, not ours, for the glory of your name, not, not our reputation. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.